Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories with the wonderful historian Helen McCarthy. This is about a history of working motherhood, something that is incredibly close to my heart as I have a child and I work very hard, um, as do many, many women today. So it was really interesting to speak to Helen and understand how women cope with this in the past and in many ways pave the way for women today. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the very start of her book because I think it's actually some quite powerful words and it really struck me when I read this. It is inconceivable that I would have ever contemplated writing history of working motherhood had I not at least some first-hand experience of my subject. The desperate dash to get children dressed, fed and out of the door in the morning the steely willpower needed to breeze through meetings and phone calls on four hours sleep and a lot of strong coffee, the fervent prayer that a small person's runny nose will not presage a full-blown childcare crisis. I have so been there. The watchful gaze on the office clock of school or nursery pickup time approaches, the endless double-checking that tube lines are indeed running, that traffic is flowing, and that it really is Monday, not Tuesday, and that, yes, you did send that crucial email to your line manager and you did remember to sign the end-of-term thank-you card for your daughter's form teacher. These everyday stresses of the mother who works for pay have a history, which I was curious to uncover. Yet, I was equally determined not to write a book only about women like me, that is, white, middle-class, highly educated, and well-paid mothers established in professional careers. How mothers fought their way into senior posts in industry, politics, and similar professions is a story that needs to be told. But these battles cannot stand in isolation from women's wider struggle for equality in the workplace. I hope you enjoy this excellent podcast. Helen McCarthy, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's lovely to be here talking to you. I am so excited about this podcast because it really resonates with me as a, as a working mother and the difficulties that I have day to day and how women in the past have dealt with that and, you know, and had much, much a harder time than I have. So I usually have a little bit of a map with questions and I was I was thinking of some questions to ask you and it just felt like I was writing and writing and writing so I think I have there is so much to discuss I want to begin more at the beginning of your book because it really spans from the 19th century through to sort of the late 20th century starting at the beginning with the 19th century what was it like for working women the, during this period 
So I start the book in the mid to late 19th century when there were probably hundreds of thousands of mothers working regularly for wages in one form or another. And you found mothers uh, employed in quite a wide range of sectors. But a lot of the work that they were doing was not regular, full-time, continuous paid work on the male model. Uh, Instead, it was often very intermittent work. Uh, It might involve uh, working inside the home for wages. So a lot of mothers were taking in laundry for neighbours. They might be stitching shirt collars. They might be assembling matchboxes. They might be mending sacks or pulling fur, often for very low wages, and fitting all of those uh, activities in around the domestic unwaged work that they were doing for their families. Outside the home, you did find quite a large number of working mothers in the cotton mills of the Lancashire textiles industry. That was an area where mothers were able to do quite skilled work. But elsewhere, they tended to be employed in lower skilled uh, or unskilled factory work, the kinds of jobs that men on the whole weren't doing. So were women at this point expected to work or was it really a necessity? Young unmarried daughters in the household were expected to pull their weight and to contribute to the household economy, which for many would have involved going out to work for wages, although a lot of unmarried daughters also might be helping their mothers with housework and childcare inside the home. But by the late 19th century, it was fairly usual for younger single women to be wage earning. It was less common for married women and mothers to be going out and doing regular wage earning. I mean, we have a bit of a problem with the data here because uh, uh, historians rely very much on the census uh, to get a sense of the uh, Victorian workforce, what it looked like, its composition. And a lot of married women's work is under-recorded on the census because the census was taken at a particular time of year. Um, And if you were doing intermittent casual homework uh, and you weren't working that week, then you would have been returned as unoccupied on the census. So we have to bring together lots of different sources in order to try and build a bit more of a a detailed granular picture of, of just how regular and commonplace married women's work actually was. And as I say, there were lots of differences across regions and across occupations, and of course also across family forms. So uh, widows were much more likely to be earning wages, uh, unmarried mothers, uh, mothers whose husbands had absconded or perhaps whose husbands were disabled or, or unable to work for other reasons. And how was um, how was women's work categorised within this, the social class system that is so prevalent within Victorian society? Well, there was a very strong dividing line between manual work and non-manual work. Most working class women were doing manual work of one kind or another, uh, either inside a factory or inside their own homes or, of course, domestic service, which was the largest employer, single employer of women uh, at the end of the the 19th century. Uh, Middle class women tended not to work after marriage uh, or motherhood out of uh, convention. And also they were generally under less economic pressure 
uh, to earn for their families. Um, but there were professions which middle-class mothers were uh, pursuing in the late 19th century. So one of the women that I talk about in the book was the uh, medical pioneer, uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. And she's very interesting because she's a very, her name is very widely known as one of these women who sort of uh, blazed a, a trail uh, for women coming after her in this very masculine profession. But what I didn't realise until I started researching the book was that she was a mother and she actually had her children relatively late in life. She was 37 when she had her first daughter and she was absolutely adamant when she got married that she was going to continue with her profession. She saw herself as very much a role model uh, for younger women wanting to make their way uh, in medicine. Uh, and so she was able to keep running her private consulting rooms. Um, she opened a hospital for women uh, and because she was pretty affluent and well off, she could have uh, servants and nannies looking after her children. So class was really, really important when we're thinking about the kinds of jobs that mothers could do and have access to. Yeah, because talking about Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, um, she is well known, but she was also affluent, as you say, and white and middle class. And she she had that availability of aid, of help with her children. What about women who who weren't so fortunate or women of different ethnicities? I was really interested in trying to reconstruct childcare solutions. So to think about, uh, you know, who is looking after the children, who is doing the domestic labour uh, that needs to be done uh, when mothers are not at home because they're out wage earning. And most working class women, and this is true really right through the period, make use of informal care networks. So Grandparents, usually grandmothers, are absolutely key in working class communities as providers of care. Uh, Childminders, again, often local women within the working class community uh, who look after the children of working mothers. OK, and you, you talk about the community. How important is the community when it comes to looking after children and within a working mother's environment? So something that I think we lack today a lot of the time is this sense of the community around us pitching in and helping each other out in a way that I believe and correct me if I'm wrong that was much more much more present in in the past. I think that's right in so far as 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 I say childcare networks were often very much focused on the community and the neighborhood and you'd have women uh, having finding childminders the next you know the next street down, uh, and that those bonds of trust were very important. But I guess community could also sometimes be judgmental and oppressive, and might promote and reproduce very powerful norms that militated against mothers going out to work. And certainly it, it, it seems as though uh, in some working class communities, those local norms were really important in shaping uh, traditions of married women's work. So, you know, somewhere like Preston or Oldham where, or Blackburn uh, in the 19th century, where it was quite common for married women to go to the mill. Uh, the social norms locally were that working mothers used childminders. Uh, they bought food, ready-cooked food from the local cookshops on the corners. Um, 
uh, you know, they, they sent their laundry out to other women in the neighbourhood rather than doing it themselves, and that was seen as normal. Whereas in other kinds of communities, I mean, if you think about, for example, Welsh mining communities where there was very, very little paid work for women to do, and it was very, very unusual for mothers uh, to be wage earning on a regular basis, and the social norms against them doing so were really quite powerful. That's really interesting that outsourcing has always existed in that context. I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really thought about that because now that's something as mothers we do a lot today, um, whether that's outsourcing food for children or childcare or, um, like you say, laundry. Um, it's interesting that that was always there. It was always done. It wasn't women weren't necessarily expected to do absolutely everything on top of that. I think you touched on the idea that um, there was a bit of judgment within communities and you do mention in your book the idea of working women they're sort of tainted in some way and I I sort of thought about the idea of the fallen woman and how how that might can link to working women although it's not necessarily sex work that they'd be doing but it was there a level of that's misogyny attached to a working woman I think that there was always a sense, I'm talking about the late 19th, early 20th century here, that the workplace was a place of danger, and potentially sexual danger for women, and perhaps particularly for younger unmarried women. And pe- this was one of the reasons why parents might keep their daughters at home, because they were worried about losing some control and losing some of their parental authority over their daughters, um, particularly in factories were seen as particularly questionable environments in which, you know, for young women to, to go into. I think with mothers, actually, it's quite interesting because some of the, the factory inspectors who write reports about conditions uh, for women in late 19th century industry actually notice that it's often the older married women who were the ones talking rather colourfully, uh, sharing rather lewd stories, um, being a bad influence on the younger women, which I found really interesting. But I think there's a broader question about about respectability. So if you are a married woman, and I think this is true of the working classes as well as the middle classes, there's a sense that you need to be uh, doing the kind of work which is respectable, which you can you can frame within the context of you know this is this is good, clean, honest work, and I'm doing it to support my family. Was there any work that fell into that category that was kind of distinguished as women's work? So I think of something like millinery or something to do with the making of textiles. That the uh, so whether you're sewing or cooking or was was there a, were there roles for women that men wouldn't really go near, or was it was it very was it very non-binary? Uh, needlework is really important because it's one of the trades which women can be apprenticed to and which is considered a skilled skilled work which a woman can uh, turn to throughout her life to earn a living so uh, ne- and needlework is very much uh, is a very is, is very gendered uh, so you have lots of uh, women working in the garment trades uh, in the 19th century uh, and often it, it's also the kind of work that they can do at home. So when I talked about waged work inside the home, the idea that, you know, 
a mother is likely to have those skills anyway and she's she may very well have a sewing machine and she can turn her hand uh, to sewing to earn a few extra shillings when required and that's the the kind of work that doesn't take women sort of out of their natural sphere as it were needlework is seen as a skill which all women need anyway because they're going to be mending their own children's clothes and they're going to be perhaps even making clothes for themselves and their family uh, so it's entirely natural and normal that they might then use that skill to earn a few shillings for the family as well and what was the um what was the men's or the father's response to this because we talked about it on a sort of wider social level but what about domestically so inside the house do you did you come across anything that talked about how how husbands responded to their wives going out to work it's very difficult to peer inside the working class family and to get a real sense of the the power dynamics and the intimate details um, of an emotional sort of relations between husbands and wives. It seems as though where the fathers couldn't earn a breadwinning wage, perhaps because they were disabled or ill, perhaps because there simply was no work available to them, Uh, There was a kind of grudging acceptance that their wives needed to go out to work and were the ones um, bringing in the wages. And there was, I did find evidence of men doing childcare in order to uh, allow them, their their wives to go out uh, and, and, and earn. But more broadly speaking, the, the ideology of the male breadwinner is very, very powerful. It's very pervasive uh, in the late 19th century, this, this idea that a man ought to be able to keep his dependence on a single wage uh, and that it's a source of shame if he is unable to do that. And that comes across quite, quite powerfully. I think that still exists in, in many cases, actually. I think there are not so many men um, who would be super comfortable with it, with being the stay-at-home parent and their wives going out to work. I think that's that still exists um, in many cases. There's certainly a very strong continuity. So one of the things I say at the beginning of the book is, uh, you know, it's a story of transformation in women's lives, but it's a story largely of continuity in men's lives insofar as the model of full-time continuous employment over the life course is what characterises most men's lives at the beginning of the period. It's what characterises most men's lives at the end of the period. There is a little bit of an upswing in part-time and flexible working amongst fathers at the end of the 20th century, but it's not hugely significant. Uh, And we still live in a world where it's assumed that men are either in full-time work or looking for full-time work, regardless of their parental status. Uh, And I think think you're right as well that there are these tensions that are produced where women earn more than their male partners. There is data to suggest, you know, there are... I think it's something like sort of ten to fifteen percent of marry of house of couple households the the woman is the is the higher earner but it's it's unusual and it's interesting because it does touch a nerve i think you know when you when you when you talk about it to people it's the historical patriarchy coming back <laughs> to to haunt us <laughs> always always um so what about wage distribution so were women expected to give all of their wage to maintaining the household were men doing the same thing or because I mean let's 
of course, there was not equal pay at this point. So how was that managed within families? Well, in the traditional setup where the wife wasn't wage earning outside the home and was dependent on the male wage packet, there would be you know, a, a variety of arrangements. So some men would come home and tip their wage packet on the table and then the wife would give them a little bit of money back for pocket money. In other cases, uh, husbands may take a portion of their wages and give them to, to wives. But this is sort of one of the the really interesting and significant themes in 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 my in my book because where a wife is or mother is earning her own wages even if they're very small she has control over them that is income that is coming directly to her that she has earned and that belongs to her uh, and that's very important and you do find evidence from the early 20th century of wives saying things like you know five shillings that you've earned yourself is worth you know twice as much as anything he may give you and that sense that earning your own wage gives you an opportunity to have control and discretion in terms of what you spend it on, is really important. And wives don't have to continually be going to their husbands to ask for money if they need a bit more for the housekeeping or if they want to buy themselves you know, a new hat or new shoes. Uh, and that, that, that's there. You can f- see that in uh, the sources in the late 19th century and it becomes very, very powerful by the end of the 20th century, the importance of having control over an independent way. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So the big change at the start of and the middle of the 20th century is obviously the two great world wars. Starting with the First World War, 
How did that change women? Because obviously it was then followed by Spanish influenza, which which killed many, many young men. Mm. How did that change for working women? Were they expected to do um, jobs that were traditionally male roles? Well, during the First World War, a large number of wives and mothers were mobilised by the state for essential war work. They weren't conscripted, that didn't happen, but they were put under a lot of moral pressure to step up if they if they could. And a lot of women also were under economic pressure to earn. So uh, you do see an upswing in mothers going into, into various war industries. And the state does support them in some ways. So there are war nurseries that are opened, which are for the use of uh, working mothers. Uh, there are improvements in things like industrial welfare and the kind of quality of food that women are able to, to eat in canteens when they're at work. Uh, so you see an improvement in women's health and you also see an improvement in women's wages because the trade unions do a deal with government in 1915 saying, OK, you can mobilise all these women, they can do lots of skilled work in industry and they can have uh, higher wages just so long as when the men come back in at the end of the war, all of those jobs go back to them. And that's pretty much what happened. So by uh, 1919, most women who had been doing skilled engineering work, making shells, making bullets, had been pushed out and were being pushed back into the more traditionally feminised sectors, particularly domestic service. And in terms of the lasting legacy of the First World War for mothers, it also very much heightens anxieties about uh, the maternal body, about women's reproductive functions, about how, uh, how the future of the race and that kind of eugenicist language is very pervasive uh, will be safeguarded. So in a way, the First World War gives mothers lots of opportunities and improves their standard of living in many respects. But then it also reinforces this very strong sense that the real work that mothers should be doing is in the home, nurturing the next generation. Was there any backlash to that from women? Um, were there any any uh, unions that came together who campaigned for for those sorts of roles to be available to them? I think that most women who went into that those skilled jobs in industry accepted that this was a temporary for the duration only phenomenon and they understood the basis on which they were being allowed permitted to do this work. And I think also a lot of women accepted that when they got married and they assumed that they would get married, most women did get married, uh, they would, like their mothers, largely step back from regular wage earning uh, and would look to a male breadwinner as their main source of support because that was that was what the system was. That was what working class girls did. And... I, do, I think it's it's important in our you know in the 21st century that we don't impose our own sort of assumptions or views uh, on women from a century ago when we remember actually what the conditions were for working class women trying to bring up children, trying to keep homes clean, trying to put food on the table. It was a really really tough job, and it was full time work actually. Still is. It's, it still is in many ways, <laughs> but it's not as backbreaking now as it was then. You know, if you think about just trying to kind of keep the home warm or try to get hot water, and this is sort of before you have 
electrification before you have running hot water. A lot of um, working class housing in the early 20th century was absolutely appalling. So it's not surprising that a lot of women pretty much accepted that marriage meant the termination of their wage earning uh, and that if they were going to be earning any money for their families, it would probably be on a more sort of casual, intermittent basis. When we've talked about women um, who have children, what about women who are pregnant? How was that seen within the working world? So the evidence that I managed to collect on pregnant women in the workplace was rather fragmented for the 19th century. Um, There was quite a lot of interest in the pregnant women at work during the First World War. And I think in some ways the the spectre of death on the Western Front, the fact that so many men were dying uh, during the First World War, sort of concentrated minds in Britain on uh, the next generation and how they should be supported. So there was a great deal of anxiety, actually, about the impact of heavy war work, heavy industrial war work on the maternal body. I mean, it's worth saying that, of course, women had been doing backbreaking labour in other kinds of factories or indeed in the home, you know, moving around heavy buckets of water or scrubbing the kitchen floor often went, you know, heavily pregnant. But there's something about the atmosphere of the First World War that concentrates minds on this on this issue. So you do see some measures being put into place in war factories to help pregnant women, to move them onto slightly lighter duties, uh, to give them good uh, medical care. Uh, but uh, there's there's quite a lot of squeamishness around the pregnant body uh, in the early 20th century. Well, there still is now um, in the workplace, this sense that it's 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 matter out of place. It's it's unnatural. It's you know, if you just think about some of the some of the euphemistic language that's used uh, to refer to to, to pregnant women. Uh, and I think in a lot of factories, it seems as though, you know, as soon as a woman started showing, the foreman would would send her home. Uh, And I think, I mean, practices seem to vary quite a lot, again, sort of between different regions and different industries. But, you know, there's a point at which you're sent home and then you're, you know, you're not coming back. Yeah, because that in pregnancy, there is definitely a sense of feeling like your body's not your own. And that's not... In the case that you have actually a, a, a being within you, it's actually the case that people can can tell you what to do and they feel they have this this authority over your physical person. And that really resonates, actually, talking about that, being told how you would feel, how you must be feeling, how you must be behaving. It's interesting to say that women, even though they might be able, they would be sent home. Do you think that that was, do you think that that was a, a sort of insurance for the for the work for the employer or was that more of a social um judgment i think it connects to broader issues around protection protecting women in the workplace and seeing women and particularly women's bodies as vulnerable and this comes back to actually to the point about the workplace as a site of danger for women so right at the end of the 19th century in the 1890s a law was passed which said that uh, employers could not knowingly employ a woman within four weeks of giving birth but this law was sort of widely perceived to be a dead letter because women could just go to a new factory where they weren't known and uh, the employer would be none the wiser that they had just given birth. 
if and you know if they if they were desperate to earn wages they they would often do that there was also legislation passed in particular industries which were referred to as the dangerous trades in order to protect women um, and women's bodies so one would have been um one was white lead manufacturing and this was seen as as something that was particularly dangerous for pregnant women actually it was very dangerous for men as well and as soon as women were excluded from particular processes within that industry and men were sent in instead men started getting very ill so you know in a way men and women should both be protected uh, from dangerous workplaces but this particular obsession and particular focus on the maternal body we see that um, through some of the debates about protecting women in the workplace. And it's actually quite a tricky one because on the one hand, you have uh, liberal feminists like people like Millicent Garrett uh, Fawcett, the suffragist leader, saying there should be no interference at all with women's work. Women should be able to sell their labour on an equal basis with men. There shouldn't be any intervention. On the other side of the spectrum, you have uh, trade unionist socialist women saying, actually, no, working class women are vulnerable to exploitation. They do need protection. And actually, if we intervene to protect them, that then is the first step towards creating safer workplaces for everyone. And that was a real debate within feminism in the early 20th century. That's really interesting. What about the 50s? Why was the 1950s such a big change with all of this, more so than actually following the world wars? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we think of the 1950s as a very conformist decade, a decade of sort of ideal homes and and and, beauty, and housewives in their in their in their pinnies standing next to their washing machines. Um, but actually, it's a decade in which a very important trend takes root uh, for married women. So increasingly, married women women are having smaller families. They're probably only having two or three children and they're having them closer together. Uh, they're in better shape physically because of the NHS, because of better diets, because of rising real wages. Uh, and because the economy is booming, employers are really, really keen to get them back into the workplace. And one of the important legacies of the Second World War, actually, was the introduction of part-time work in industry. So although women had done bits and pieces of, of casual, uh, intermittent charring and, and homeworking, there wasn't really any regular part-time employment in industry until the Second World War and it was introduced explicitly to get wives and mothers into the the, uh, wartime workforce. And this was an important legacy that lingered into the 1950s when employers realised with a booming economy that they couldn't get enough full-time workers so they started employing married women on part-time shifts. Uh, And this then becomes a, a pretty commonplace model for women who want to earn money or who want to get out of the house and and have some uh, and have have a job, uh, so by the fifties, pe- commentators are talking about the dual role, uh, which is a model whereby women are going back into the labour force in their late thirties and early forties, and this is why I think the fifties, nineteen fifties, is actually really really important for setting down that marker and actually transforming working motherhood from something which had been seen as associated with poverty and economic pressure to something which is seen as rather aspirational uh, for the affluent uh, housewife. And that's all that's all really positive. Um, but there's a chapter that in your book that you titled Doing It All. 
And that really, really resonated with me because as any working mother would would say now that there is this pressure now, it's almost gone the other way. You're expected to do and have it all. At what point do you think that became problematic or even apparent to women that there was this now, this expectation to be a mother, to maintain a household, to feed your family, but also to have a successful career? I mean, were, at this point, what point did working not become a necessity but become more of an ambition? Hmm. There were always women who were driven by a sense of vocational commitment or a sense of professional ambition or a real love um, of what of what they were doing. But you're right that in the 1970s and 80s, it became more commonplace for women to express those kinds of career ambitions and to start seeing a career as something that they were entitled to pursue beyond marriage and beyond motherhood because the the the, the 1950s model that I just described was one which assumed that mothers wouldn't be competing with men for careers they would be seizing opportunities to get back into the workforce to have a little job perhaps a part-time shift in a factory perhaps a part-time job in a shop uh, something that uh, would give them some sociability, something to do beyond housework and childcare. Um, but it wouldn't be a career. It wouldn't be something that they'd be pursuing with this sort of single-minded commitment. I think as uh, women's access to uh, higher education increases, as more women are uh, graduating with degrees, I think also under the influence of second wave feminism and the Sex Discrimination Act, which really begins to challenge this idea that careers are for men and women sort of slot into these little jobs. I think that then creates all these opportunities for very talented, ambitious women. But it also then, as you say, uh, creates this added stress because in return for being allowed to pursue careers, it's up to women themselves to sort out how, you know, childcare and housework and to do those negotiations with partners who may also be pursuing careers. So I'm sort of very interested in the rise of the dual career couple uh, from the late 60s and 1970s on. And the dual career couple is a kind of source of fascination for the media because here are husbands and wives both pursuing career success. And this is unprecedented. And this, you know, the, the, the assumption that this must be creating very serious marital discord. And how can they possibly make this work? Or, you know, how is that affecting the child and who would naturally be the one who would receive the criticism for that? The mother. Which makes, there's a there's a term that has been, I think, probably coined over the last five years or so. Um, don't, don't quote me on that. But um, this term emotional labour and how women naturally take on as well as their work and their general day-to-day care of the household also the emotional labour and how how in the past do you think or the last 50 60 70 years how do you think that that has affected women's working lives alongside their husbands in this dual career couple I think in some ways we have to go back even further to find the origins of this domestic ideal where women are responsible for 
maintaining the home as a place of emotional security, as a place that is a safe haven from the market, that is a place of nurture for children uh, and for husbands. I mean, that idea was actually integral to Victorian gender ideology uh, in the 19th century. And it, it it endures right through the 20th, this, this notion that, that wives and mothers are, have this responsibility for, for, for maintaining the home uh, as this particular kind of, of space, of security. Uh, and I think that women really internalise that. And we see that in the late 20th century. I mean, I, I, I was wondering whether I might write about the domestic goddess uh, and Nigella Lawson, her book, that I, th- I think it came out in 2000, something like that. And it was a big sort of cultural phenomenon, this idea that you can be, you must be a domestic goddess. And I think, and it was interesting, the reception of that book, because I think people weren't sure whether... It was ironic or whether it really was an ideal that actually uh, contemporary women were sort of taking taking very much to heart. And, of course, you know, that creates uh, additional stresses for women who are trying to pursue careers at the same time. And that's really, I guess, what I'm sort of getting at in my uh, the chapter, uh, doing it all, that it's not actually just about having it all, you know, the job the the family uh the sort of total package it's about the work that goes into making that happen you know having it all requires a great deal of work yeah absolutely um i completely agree (laughs) i definitely (laughs) felt that myself um Helen, I could go on and on and on. There's so much I want to ask you. There's things about, gosh, power dressing. There's there's so much, but um, we both have uh, small children that we need to go and tend to as well. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's it's something that's very close to my heart. And actually, when I read I uh, read a couple of paragraphs from your introduction, I felt it was actually quite emotional reading it because it just. I could completely connect to every single word that you said and I can understand why this was such a powerful and important thing that you had to write. So thank you for doing that because I think it will help so many women understand sort of where they've come from and how they're not alone as well. Thank you, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, It was nice to see you even though it's all been on Zoom rather than (laughs) face-to-face as we originally planned Um, and I hope to have you back on the podcast again fairly soon and um, what so can for everybody who isn't aware what is the title of your book and where can you where can you get it now so my book is called double lives a history of working motherhood and it's out with bloomsbury books and you should be able to buy it online in the usual outlets or possibly from your independent bookseller uh, if they are delivering locally but it, i hope that it will be a very appropriate uh, covid19 lockdown read Absolutely. For those of you who do have time, it is, um, it's, a re- it's a good one. Thank you so much. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.